Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. And they came to Bethesda, Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened up his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he told them, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. This may or may not surprise you, but the first time I met Russell, I did not like him. (laughs) But like an abrasive fungus, he grows and 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 he grows. And then you love him. So, hey, um, he said, hey, my, my, uh, my small group, my community group, we're like family. I took it literally. So what more do you want me to do? So... Hey, I'm super glad to be here with you all. Um, have you guys ever had a moment in life where um, you kind of wrestled or struggled with something and then it just fell into place? Like it just it clicked for you. Um, so I had a quarter-life crisis. That's when I was wearing ankle weights. And I decided to... <laughs> it's, tr- it's true. <laughs> I stopped wearing ankle weights. All right. um, I decided to play the guitar. And I took a year of lessons. And I'm not very good, but I, I love the guitar. I love about it. And I remember my guitar teacher was teaching me um, different chords. And I remember the fret of the guitar being something that was like a mystery to me. And all I would do is just rote memorization. And then I remember one day sitting in my apartment alone playing the guitar. And it, it just seemed like the fretboard unlocked for me. It seemed like all of a sudden this thing that was a mystery or the motions that I was going through, it became something that I knew. You ever had a moment like that? Um, think about this. I, um, have you guys ever gone wakeboarding? It's a water sport. I'm not great at it. But one time I had a friend who took me. And the first time you do any sort of water sport, unless you're just one of those freaks of nature who's really talented at things immediately, which is disgusting, um, like you're, you just fall a million times. And it takes forever. Like the boat has to come back and get you. And then people on the boat are saying these words to you that they think are helpful. And it's not. Hey, tuck in your elbows and keep your knees tucked. And the moment hits, you'll know it. What, what advice is that? When the moment hits, you're going to know it. And so I fell for like 15 or 16 times. And then all of a sudden, one time it happened. My elbows were tucked, my knees were in, I felt the pressure of the boat, and I stood up. Now, I haven't wakeboarded in three or four years, but I would be willing to bet that the first or second time I'm going to stand up, because all of a sudden, that, that knowledge that meant nothing became a reality. It clicked. Some of you are weirdos, and you like math, and so my last course of math was pre-trig, or it was trigonometry, pre-calc, and that was my last one. I decided I was, I was retired, because the concepts never clicked for me. I didn't, I didn't wrestle with it enough. Um, and think about this. Like, think about love. Like, falling in love. Like, a romantic relationship. Um, something has to click. And for some of you, it's easy, right? Some of you, like, you just fall in love immediately. For me, man, it was a journey. I think my wife's here now, so things worked out well. But I, I think about it. I, I had so many um, slip-ups. I had so many breakups. I had so, not so many. Like, I was... <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, it's like one girl I broke over like nine times. But I like look back and I go, man, like the reason that was difficult for me is because, you know, when I was young, my, my mom died of cancer. 
And so you think about commitment. And then my dad, who had a tough lot of being a single father, was a raging alcoholic. And so all of a sudden, something that was supposed to be so easy, like everyone's supposed to be able to fall in love. Like we've all seen the movies. It was so difficult for me. And I, I, I felt like I was struggling or grasping with something that, that the simplest of people could understand. But I couldn't. And then it clicked. And after, it was a long time, we dated for a long time. My wife was very frustrated. I said, babe, I love you. I want to spend my life with you. And it's able to, what seemed unable to grasp fell into place. Well, here's what I believe. I believe that your spirituality, I believe that your journey with Christ, whatever that might look like, is something that we have to wrestle with and then it, it falls into place. It clicks. And for some people, it's able to click faster. And others of you, it just takes a while. And so for those of you who are slow learners, my people, we have a God who I believe is faithful. And so today, uh, we're in the book of Mark, chapter 8. And it seems like you guys have been in the book of Mark for the last 18 years. And it seems like it might be 18 years before you end. But it's a good book. And so here's what it looks like. We're going to look at the story of Jesus doing this odd miracle. It's like a mostly successful miracle, which is, which is strange. And eventually it has a good story. And then it ends with his disciples saying, you are the Christ. And so today I just want to look at this a little bit. And so here's Jesus. He goes into a town and a crowd comes up to him. They says, hey, will you please touch this man and heal him? Well, that's odd because uh, we are accustomed to the stories of Jesus on this end 2,000 years later. But really, touch as a healing mechanism was not like a biblical standard. I don't know if you guys know this. But when you go to like the Old Testament, touch was... Um, the Levites, who were the priests in the Old Testament, they would touch the sacrifices. And they would touch the sacrifices to, to consecrate them is the biblical word, which just means to, to intend for holy use. And so no, no longer was this a lamb or was this grain, but this was consecrated. We have made this holy, and we give this holy sacrifice to God. That's what touch was used for. Touch was also used for um, when they would raise up or ordain their priests. So the Levites, again, when they would say, hey, we're going to ordain you into priesthood, they would touch that man. They say, we consecrate you. We intend you for holy use. Uh, we see this when Moses passes leadership to Joshua in the Old Testament. He consecrates that for intended use. And so this crowd asking Jesus to touch the man to heal him is a little bit odd. You know, now we have the book of James who says, hey, the elders are going to lay hands to provide that healing. Uh, but here we go. So why does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus doesn't do this um, immediately. It's very odd. This is one of the miracles. There's a couple of anomalies here. And I don't think that Jesus did things or did many things on accident. I think there was intentionality around it. And so they bring this man to Jesus, and they say, touch him and heal him. And there's really not a lot of context for that other than they had heard who he was. They had heard that there was a miracle worker. They heard there was a man of God. They heard that there was someone who was giving sight to the blind but they did not realize the full story. They didn't really realize who they were interacting with. And so in this odd moment, Jesus grabs his hand and walks him out of the city. Why? This is one of the few times that Jesus ever does a miracle that's not in public and it's not open. For some reason, Jesus takes this man and walks him away from the crowd. Why? I, I don't really know. But there is some significance of this. Look at the imagery. There is a man who cannot see, who is being led by the hand of he who created all. So in the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, there's some confusing language, but I think it's imagery. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now we believe the Word is Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. There is a blind man being led by the hand by Christ who was there at creation. So think about that. As he's walking out of the city, he who has all of this power, who is he spending his time with? Who is he interacting with? I pause here for just a, a brief interlude. So often when I think of success, I think of financial success. You know, if the church could just get more money, we would really be able to make an impact in the city. Um, sometimes I think of political success. You know, if we could just get a number of laws passed, we could change some of the things, then, then we could really make a change in the city. Um, sometimes we think of it as a physical presence. Hey, if we just got enough people, all of a sudden we can make this change in the city. But yet, who is it that Jesus interacts with? Who are his people? It's the little, it's the lost, and it's the least. And so we have a God who is so interested, he is so vested in the story, that he takes a pause from his day and he leads the crowd and he takes the blind man by the hand and leaves the city. And to me, that's a story of hope. That there is goodness and there is greatness and we have the, the character of God set before us that he cares about the little and lost and the least. A group of which I think I belong. And so Jesus takes this blind man, he walks him out of the city and then Mark says he spits in his eyes. Disgusting. <laughs> in 2007, I was a graduated senior in high school, and me and one of my good friends, a guy named Garrett, um, took a diet pill called Ally, A-L-L-I. <laughs> it promised to make you lose weight, and pardon my French, it gave me diarrhea, if you've ever heard of that. <laughs> we, so. 2,000 years have passed, but we're still trying some crazy methods. <laughs> At least one of you in this room has just lathered your body with oils all the time. The essential ones, right? So Jesus spits in this man's eyes, and here's what happens. Maybe for the first time ever, Jesus is mostly successful. Like every other miracle, it happens. Like immediate, instantaneously. And so the, the question is, did Jesus make a mistake? And the argument I'm going to make is I believe that this is an actual event. I think that Jesus did lead this man by the hand. But I think Jesus also, because he is a masterful teacher, does this as an object lesson. Like imagine if any other miracle of Jesus was halfway done. Like in John, I think it's chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And can you imagine if he was like, ta-da, and you drink it and you go, wow, this tastes horrible. <laughs> Like, please do it again. It would be a lot less impressive of a miracle. Or I think of this is where my, my mind goes. Imagine if Jesus came out of the tomb looking like the walking dead. <laughs> We'd be like, no, please don't rise. Go back. Try again. <laughs> this is not impressive. This is horrifying. Yeah. And so we see this moment where Jesus says, what, what do you see? And the guy's like, well, I can't really see super clearly, but I see people, but they look like walking trees. I can't, I can't focus. There's still a lack of clarity. There's still a lack of sight. In this moment, it's safe to assume that this man was not born blind. I don't think this diminishes the miracle, but he knew what men looked like. And so we see that this is really a miracle of him having some sort of illness or ailment that made him blind, and Jesus is, is responding or returning the sight to him. 
I think about this, how many of us live in a spiritual dimness where we maybe have encountered a spiritual journey and we see things, but it's just not focused. What's that look like? Well, you know, I'm following Jesus, but my life hasn't gotten better. Or I don't really understand what things like prayer are. Or I'm, I go on Sundays and I'm pretty freaked out by the corporate singing and some of these other things. I keep expecting it to turn into like an episode of Handmaid's Tale. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Think about this real quick. At this point, how long do you think the disciples had been with Jesus? Like a few days, a few weeks, a few months? My, my best guess is, is probably over a year. Um, we're about to get to the crux where Peter has this grand revelation. But his disciples, who he hand chose, who spent time with him, who ate with him, who laughed with him, who drank with him, who had heard his teaching and they had seen his miracles, did not understand that he was the Christ, that he was the appointed one. We live in a world where when we pray, I do not hear the audible voice of God return. If I reach out to try to touch Jesus' hand, I can maybe imagine that, or maybe that's a spiritual imagery for me, but I'm not the blind man who feels the grasp of Jesus lead me. And so when we think about spiritual discovery, I used to have this hard line of like, you must be an idiot if you can't figure out that Christ is real. And my stance has softened. And it's softened to this. I believe that Christ has you on a journey. And for some of us, it's quicker, and some of us are longer, and some of us are remedial, and some of us are very remedial. But we have a masterful teacher. And I take solace in that because it cra it's crazy to me. The disciples spent so much time with him, and they still didn't understand the full picture of who he was. I think that God has that same patience with you on your spiritual journey. So here we are. Jesus spits in his eyes, round one. He sees people that look like trees, but they don't totally have it figured out. And then Jesus isn't done there because Jesus doesn't want you living a life that's not clear. He's going to finish his work in you. Round two, the man has sight. Jesus then says, hey, um, when you return, don't even go to the village. There's some sort of secrecy about Christ revealing who he is in the proper time, in the proper ways, in the proper moment. Mark then immediately jumps over um, to this conversation with his disciples. And what he's asking for is like, hey, what's the local town gossip? Who are people saying that I am? And they go, oh, you know, they think you're a prophet, or maybe you're John the Baptist, come back again, or maybe the prophet Elijah. And then Jesus goes, yeah, you know, I don't really care what they say. What do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? And they had this beautiful moment where Peter then says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus, once again, in this mysterious way, says, tell no one. How I'm going to reveal myself and the ways that I'm going to do it and how I'm going to do this will come in their proper moment. In the same way that I've been with you all for over a year, and you have seen the miracles, and you've heard the teaching, and you've, you've seen me break the bread that has fed the thousands, I too want you to keep this under wraps because my timing and my ways and the, and the ways that I'm going to act in this world are not yet to come. And so we have to pause here. There's this moment of confusion. There's this moment of what the heck is going on, right? As you look at Mark chapter 8, like last week, Jesus was with his disciples, and they also talked about they forgot the leftovers, right? And they're fighting over, hey, is there going to be enough food for us even to eat? And Jesus leaves that conversation with them pretty frustrated. 
And then now we have this random miracle story about a mostly successful healing. And then Jesus is then asking his disciples, who am I? Uh, Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus is moving us from darkness to dimness to clarity. Imagine the imagery here. We have a blind man who is living in darkness. He literally cannot, he physically cannot see. How many are living in the spiritual darkness? Where they are caught in the throes of anxiety and depression and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And then Jesus does this partial miracle and the guy says, well, you know, I can kind of see. There's there's some hope, but I, I don't have the full expression of it. And then finally, Jesus moves us into clarity where he does this this ultimate healing and says, now your eyes are opened. Now you can see. And so look at this. When we go to Mark chapter 8, we can see these three movements. In Mark chapter 8, 21, Jesus offers this rebuke to the disciples. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Um, I always think of Jesus being as a little bit warm and very kind, but sometimes he's stern too. He offers a rebuke and it's a good thing. Um, during my quarter-life crisis, uh, when I was wearing ankle weights and raiding their fridge and all that, those other good things, um, Russell had actually a very meaningful conversation with me. Um, it was a very hurtful conversation, but it was good. I had the kind of friend who looked at me and said, you're angry and you're unhealthy. And at that moment, my, response, my biblical response to him was, screw you right? It's very hurtful. <laughs> it's very unchristlike. But that conversation actually led me on a journey of finding help, of finding a mentor, of getting counseling, of being honest and vulnerable about what was my responsibility and what things weren't. And I think in the same way, Jesus sometimes asks these abrasive confrontational questions of, do you not yet understand? In Mark chapter 8, we see that the man, I see men, but they look like trees walking. There's this dimness. Things are better, but they're still not clear. And then ultimately in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, we hear Peter say that you are the Christ. In Matthew's account of of this, you are the Christ, and Jesus actually has a response to him, a, a more lengthy response. So in Matthew 16, it says this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here's this imagery. For flesh and blood has not revealed to you this mystery. It's something that you have wrestled with, and it's something that finally has clicked into place. But it hasn't happened on an intellectual level. It hasn't happened on the scientific level. It's happened at a soul level. It's happened at this level where you say, what Christ has revealed to you, it truly is this miracle. For the God that you cannot see, and the God that you may never audibly hear, and the God that, that, who may never physically grab you by the hand, you still believe that he is the Christ. And that has been revealed to you at this, this gut, soul level. And it's this beautiful awakening. So blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I think we've gotten some things wrong of thinking the church is going to be built on Peter. I believe that the church is going to be built on this idea that Jesus is the Christ. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are are a defensive mechanism. Gates are used to keep people out or keep people in. 
They're not offensive weapons. And so when, when we have this clarity about Christ, all of a sudden the barriers that stand in this world, the barriers that represent the things of hell will not prevail against this good news of who Jesus is. We're going to unpack that a little bit. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be, bound, shall be loosed in heaven. When we believe and we have this clarity of who Jesus is, if it's, if it's more than a spiritual teaching, but it is the surrender that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the long-awaited one. He is the one who is our hope, he is our future, he is the one who has given life and continues to give life. When we believe that, the things that we do as a church, and when I say the church, I don't mean a Sunday gathering, I mean the people who sit down and make up the church. The things that we do and the power that we hold, the barriers are going to fall down. The things that seem unconquerable will be conquered. But I have this fear that we read these verses and we come and we hear these things, and my fear is this, that sometimes we settle for a life of dimness and not of clarity. Right? The movement is Christ moves us from darkness to dimness to clarity, and sometimes I think we get stuck. And sometimes I think we are satisfied in our stuckness. One of the, I believe, the, the American Christian dreams of the church is this. Be financially secure and be a good person. Hey, climb the corporate ladder enough to, so you have enough material wealth so that you can live comfortably, right? So you can have excess. That's, that's one of them. And then also become a good person. And then once you get married and you have kids, then the third step of that is just to make sure that your kids follow Jesus. Now I pause and say, I think all those are good things. I think financial stability is fine. I think it's good. I wish I had more, right? I think becoming a good person is, is a good quality to have. In fact, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit. To have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And against all of those things, they are so good. There's no law of the land that says you can't do those. It seems like every religion and every creed and every people group love joy, love peace, love patience, love kindness, love goodness. So there's nothing wrong with, with being and, and, and chasing after personal holiness. Maybe we call that sanctification. But if, when we stop there, and that's the end goal, and that's the dreams that we have for our life, I think our dreams are too small. Here's what I mean. When we have clarity about Christ being the anointed one, we realize that the barriers that this world has to offer won't hold. I believe that when, when we have this clarity about Christ, that the poverty cycle that we see, that is perpetual, I believe that in Christ it can be broken. And not just broken for an individual, I think it can be broken for cities. When we believe that we have this clarity about Christ, that broken families become whole. And restitution and relationship can be restored. I believe that uh, political turmoil can become unified and peaceful. We live in a country that's fractured. It feels fractured at times. It feels, it feels icky. It feels dangerous. It feels hostile. I believe that when we as the church begin to step up, we can provide a soothing balm to a hurting nation. Some of you talk about politics at, at Thanksgiving, and you know what I'm talking about. It gets real nasty real quick. Addictions are broken. 
I believe when Christ becomes king, right, when, when we have this clarity about who he is and what he is about, that addictions in your life and those that you know, they can be broken. That trauma and abuse that you have experienced in your life is still a part of your story, but it stops being the driving force of your story because Christ has, has provided this healing balm. That the loneliness and disconnection that this world and this city and these people feel, that they feel a sense of belonging, that they can experience community, that they no longer have to live life alone. Christ is a balm to your soul and to the hurts of this world and his church. When she, the church, is healthy, plays this role of being changed, it is akin to the eyes of the blind being opened. Now I pause and I say, but is that real? Like, how many, if you've been going up, how many times have you heard that before, right? How many times have you say, hey, we can conquer the world and we can conquer the city, but then nothing changes? Is this, even, is this a real dream? Can Christ really make these changes? Too many people have been burned out by ideals. Is Christ changing the city? Is it an ideal? Or could it be a reality? Jesus tells a parable about um, three servants. And the master who's about to go away gives each servant different amounts of money. It's kind of a bummer because some get more than others. So life's not always fair. So the first one he gives, let's say it's three pieces of gold. And to the second one he gives, oh, first one's five pieces of gold, sorry. Some of you who know your Bible are like, my gosh, Russell is desperate. <laughs> so the first one gets five, the second one gets three, and the last one gets one. Total bummer if you get one. Well, the, the, it says the master goes away, and when he returns, he says, hey, what, what have you done with my investment? And the first one was like, man, there was this thing called GameStop. Doubled it, right? You're welcome. Jesus says, hey, well done. It was what you had, you were faithful with, and because you were faithful with little, I will give you more. And to the one who had three, uh, he says, I, I also invested it. And I, I, I put your money to work. And that, that return on investment has doubled. So what you, get, you gave me three, I returned six to you. And, and he has the same conversation. Hey, well done. What, what, what you have been faithful with little, I will now give you more. And then there's the dude who had one. And if I was that, I'd get it. Like, hey, you know I'm irresponsible. That's why you gave it to me. So <laughs> here's it back. I didn't, spend, I didn't blow your money, right? And the master says, you wicked servant. You know what I'm about. You know that I, I'm a strict. You know that I'm harsh. You know that I have ideals and standards for those who belong in my household. And you squandered what I have given you. Be gone, you wicked servant. Now, strong language for sure. But when we talk about changing our life and changing our city, here's what I believe. I believe that God has given some of you five pieces of talent, and some of you three, and some of you one. That's okay. The question is not about how much. I think the question is about how faithful. And so inventory right now, what do you have? What's in your hands? 
what has God already entrusted to you. One time I was, um, I was, I was doing this life plan, it's a longer story, but with this guy, and I like the guy, but whenever I'd ask him what he wanted to do with his life, he always talked about the future. Always, 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 always. I'd be like, Mike, how do you want to put this to plan? He goes, well, once I have this and this and this, then I will do that. And after like a few months, I said, Mike, if you're always planning on helping people in the future, they will stay in the future and you're... Oh, have mercy, please. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Mike, right? That's a... I, I got caught in the pun of Mike is actually a microphone. I was talking about a guy, Mike. Mike. I'm gone. <laughs> Mike, if you're always planning on the circumstances that need to be in place for you to actually impact the lives of others, I don't think you're ever going to do it. It's almost like you're the servant who said, well, the things aren't safe enough for me to invest, and so I'm just going to hold on what I have. And so reunion, what has God already given you? Finances, friendships, influence, authority. Do you supervise others? What has God already given you? How might you want to use that to let this city know that he is the Christ for this clarity moment? Because Christ is not just interested in those in this room coming from darkness to dimness to clarity. He is interested in this city. And all the craziness. I'm from Kansas. I've seen some things this weekend, right? <laughs> from darkness to dimness, to clarity. Two action steps. First, um, radical honesty and vulnerability with yourself. To take a reflection and take an inventory and really just ask, where am I at? Now, this, when you say radical honesty, that's not like a code name to be really mean to yourself. Radical honesty sometimes says, I'm actually really talented at this but I'm scared to use it because I don't know how it will work out. Sometimes radical honesty is I'm mailing it in and I need to reevaluate. The second step is this. Who is a trusted voice that you can use to get feedback about where you're at? Sometimes that's Russell telling you that you're angry and bitter and need to work, right? Who is the trusted voice that you have in your life who can then step in and provide a sounding board of who you are. Christ is interested in moving you and the city from darkness to dimness to clarity. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you love us. Um, I thank you that you are, you are the patient, masterful teacher, that you do not give up even when we give up. And I thank you that you have the same character, that you are all about the least and the little and the lost. May we be a church, may we be a people who is so in tune with your character that this world and this city is so ripe to love those who are living in a darkness and all they want is a glimmer of hope. And I believe that you are that hope. We thank you and we love you. Amen.